What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey nerds, welcome to episode 475 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Just Adam today, and I'm really excited uh, because today's interview was a whole bunch of fun. Uh, I sat down via Zoom, like the rest of the world, uh, with Christina Henry. Uh, Christina is very well known for her dark reimaginings of classic fairy tales. Uh, She's done a couple of uh, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland books, uh, Alice and Red Queen. She did one about um, Neverland and Peter Pan called Lost Boy. Uh, she wrote The Mermaid. And then uh, last year, most recently, was uh, The Girl in Red, which uh, was really, really popular and a really phenomenal book. And she's also wrote uh, a number of her own books um, that are uh, completely original. And just uh, <laughs> the way I said that is actually really funny because we get into in this conversation the difference between reimaginings and original works, quote-unquote, because uh, she made a really good point. You know, once you take a well-known property and create your own story in there, it becomes original. So that was a really fun part of the conversation. But she has a new book out called The Ghost Tree, which is a very, very dark horror novel. And we don't get into the plot too much, and I'm not going to get into it here either, um, just because to talk about the plot really starts to be almost like spoilers from page one just because so much happens in this book that um, you just sort of you want to go into it a little bit blind um, the the less you know the, the more you'll be surprised and enjoy each um, un, you know reveal as as it comes I'll say so but we did have a really great conversation about horror in general and the things that scare us both and urban legends and how you know, urban legends as a, you tell as children become uh, kind of the impetus for stories that you then tell others and all sorts of really wonderful, uh, interesting conversations. Uh, she also has a really great way of going about writing where she she doesn't really plot out things in advance. She writes them and then as the characters make decisions in her mind, that's how she takes the story. So it's just a really cool way to think about how character decisions and choices are how she writes her books. So we, we had a lot of fun about uh, about that. And um, yeah, it was just a really, really great conversation about things that scare us and things that we like and dislike when it comes to horror novels and horror movies. A lot of fun. I think you guys are really going to like it. Uh, so if you want to get a hold of us, you can always go to professionalbooknerds.com. There we have our entire uh, backlog of over you know, 474 other episodes. Uh, you can search for authors or genres and everything right there in the search bar, and you'll be able to find any of the uh, titles or any of the uh, episodes that you want there. You can also tweet at us or find us on Instagram at probooknerds. Um, and then uh, we don't ask too often, but if you haven't yet, if you've ever gotten a book recommendation that you really enjoyed from us or you really enjoyed a, an interview we've done and you haven't already, if you wouldn't mind going to give us a five-star rating and just like a quick review in iTunes or anywhere else, uh, it takes you like a minute, but I have to tell you, anytime we see those, it really, really makes our day. So anytime we get kind reviews or nice emails, um, it's something that might take you a minute or two, but it it has us kind of glowing for the rest of the day. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, we'd really appreciate it. Also, if you go to shop.overdrive.com, I've mentioned this a couple times recently, but um, there's some fun 
uh, professional book nerd swag there, but there's also brand new Libby masks um, that are really, really comfortable. I actually have one sitting right next to me right now. Um, it's, you know, a crazy world we're living in, but masks are a thing that's that are essential when you're out and about. So if you want to support uh, Libby in your library, you can go to shop.overdrive.com and see the masks there, 100% of the proceeds. Go to library charities, so doing a good thing with it. Okay, that's enough housekeeping and enough promotion. Uh, I feel like you and I do all those things, but it's necessary to run a podcast and all of that good jazz. Okay, not going to keep you here any longer. I'm going to let you guys get to this fantastic conversation with Christina Henry on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on fabulously delicious the french food podcast bon app hi everybody it's adam and i cannot tell you how excited i am today to be joined by christina henry who is the author of the chronicles of alice which is alice the red queen and the looking glass which are fabulous those are dark kind of twisted takes on alice uh, alice's adventures in wonderland as well as The Girl in Red, which is a post-apocalyptic Red Riding Hood, which is also amazing. I've been a big fan of Christina's for a really, really long time because I love dark reimaginings of things. I actually have uh, a few Alice in Wonderland uh, tattoos on my body, so I was like very, very jazzed about this. But the book that we're going to talk about today is her newest book, The Ghost Tree, which uh, has kept me up the last few nights. And then when I did fall asleep, it was very, very dark dreams. Um, it is so fantastic and we're going to get into that and all sorts of other things but first Christina thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much I'm really excited to be here. So I was telling you before we started recording but we always have our authors kind of start our conversation by discussing maybe a little bit of what the the new book is about so I'll let you introduce it because there I would hate to give away too much plot so I'll let you stop whenever you want to on that part. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so The Ghost Tree is a coming-of-age horror novel about a Midwestern town in which some very mysterious things are happening, and um, there's several different point-of-view characters in the book, but sort of the heart of the book is the relationship between two girls, Lauren and Miranda, who've been friends since they were very, very young. but now they're getting older and they're starting to grow apart. That might really be a good place to end it because yeah. this, this, uh, this book has so much in it. There's so many, like you said, there's, there's so many different points of view and it's almost, it's almost like the, like the Shrek joke, like where it's like an onion or like you peel back layers, like every chapter you learn more and more and more about these characters and the world that you've built and so i won't we won't get into the kind of horror aspect of things first thing i I just think people should know this is definitely an adult horror book yes Um, very 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 much so um but i'm curious what part for you when you're putting together a a novel like this like an original story now retelling uh what tends to come first for you because you said there's this interpersonal relationship between these two girls but then there's this town where there's things going on and there's some dark stuff going on as well but what part of it comes first to you when you're crafting a story like this so any book that i write i write them all the same way Mm -hmm. um so pretty much every book starts for me either with an image in my head or maybe a line of dialogue um as an example, when I wrote The Girl in Red, the reason why it became The Girl in Red was because I just saw this woman wearing a red hoodie, holding an axe, and like there was red. You know, she was just there in my head. And so I wrote the book so I could find out who she was. And um, I write by hand and I write chronologically. So I don't know what's going to happen until I write it. And because I write that way, I tend to. Um, the action of the story tends to 
come out because of character choices and it's less sort of about concrete plotting like this has to happen here this has to happen here and more um i wait kind of wait and see what decisions the characters make and then the action kind of unfolds from there so in the case of the ghost tree the genesis of the ghost tree was actually a line i wrote in my notebook four years ago and i just wrote meet me by the old ghost tree and that was it and mm -hmm. i just sort of sat on it and let it kind of percolate and then one day um there was lauren riding her bike so it you know i just kind of like i let my subconscious do a lot of work mm -hmm. i'm kind of lazy that way <laughs> <laughs> um so i don't really think about it in like again sort of a conscious plotting kind of way it's almost would you say it's almost like it's like you're playing like an open world role-playing game almost where you start at the very beginning and you can make whatever decision you want to and then your characters just sort of go from there that that's unfair yeah I mean for me a lot of the pleasure of writing comes from discovering the story the way a reader would so um I'm not thinking of myself as like an architect necessarily of this world um mm -hmm. I like to be surprised when I'm writing it's one of the reasons actually why I dislike the process of rewriting because there's no more for me to discover at that mm -hmm. point so um i just like kind of finding the story as i go you know what that is actually it's funny you say that because i feel that way about horror in general especially like um especially horror novels because a lot of times when you're watching a horror movie you know what like the big bad thing is because there's been trailers or you just there's like an obvious indication where it's like the the horror movie is called like clown and you're like okay well i i know i know what's happening here whereas when i'm reading a horror novel and like for me it's almost like as soon as i know what the big creepy thing is i'm like oh okay well there's going to be a resolution or the big creepy thing is going to win like it does kind of lose it's almost like it loses its um, its luster. So I can mm -hmm. definitely see how much more fun that would be for you to to write about. The, I'm like talking in code, the big creepy thing that's yeah. in, in this novel. Um, did you always, did you, you said you wrote it, you write chronologically, but did you know that you're going to have different um, points of view and things of that? When I initially started writing you know, the first couple chapters, it was Lauren and then her mother. So I think I had an idea that it would be Lauren and then her mother and then maybe Miranda and her mother. But then other characters started edging their way into the the story. And um, it really kept the process fresh for me because every time I sat down to write, I was writing from someone else's point of view. And these other characters just sort of kept coming in you know, that I didn't really expect. And um, it, in terms of writing, I think it was the most fun I've had writing um, a book. Well, and it also, it kind of helps paint like a whole picture of this town that you've built out, as opposed to it being like, to generalize on a horror, like a final girl, and that's the only person we're focusing on. Like, it really does, it builds this atmosphere, which sort of makes the town a character in the sense because if you everyone is involved in this sort of thing the town's definitely a character and in a lot of ways this book is sort of an homage to the kinds of books that i liked reading when i was younger you know things like it or something that wicked this way comes where it's like multiple points of view there's a small town you know mm -hmm. there's something mysterious happening so i do play with a lot of those kind of horror tropes in this book um you know, like Stephen King, Ray Bradbury both wrote sort of very lovingly of the times of their childhoods in their books, you know, in Stephen King's case, it's the 50s, right? You stories like Stand By Me or whatever. In my case, it was the 80s. I grew up in the 80s. So that's when this book is set. So the time and the town are as, in a lot of ways, as much characters in the book than as the, the characters themselves. And I just think it's a different kind of storytelling when you write a final girl type story or you write from one point of view um the reader kind of discovers information as the protagonist does mm -hmm. 
when you write from multiple points of view, the reader has knowledge that the main characters might not. So then a different kind of tension is built because you're like, oh no, I know this thing, but they, they don't, you know? It's also, I, I see, I'm seeing a lot of the like, now that you said that, I'm seeing a lot of the quick connections between like Derry from It, that mm -hmm. town where exactly what you said, in addition to that you know information that the other people don't, I think it also really almost raises the stakes because it's not just a, you know, it's not just Jason Voorhees chasing after a group of teenagers. It's, right. you know, yes, well, after like 15 movies, Jason Voorhees is all encompassing, <laughs> but you know, in those first few, it was just like, he's attack. It was a very like small, you know, a small situation is happening to an extent. Whereas this, like it's everywhere. Like, you know, it's like, okay, there's something going on here that, Impacts the whole town. Impacts the whole town, exactly. Yeah. So it's not like that kind of slasher movie kind of personal. It's almost, in slasher movies, is personal, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, like you said, a select group of people who are yeah. sort of impacted by the outcome. Um, but in stories like this, you know, it's everybody is affected. Um, and I do think it, it, you know, I think it raises the stakes in a certain way because in a, even though you, as a writer, you choose to focus on just a few people, um, the outcome affects like a whole community. Mm -hmm. Well, and also you're also, you're not really like, it's almost like you raise the stakes for yourself too, because you didn't really write just about a few people. Like you really did show <laughs> how everyone, every, it, this affects every single person. And actually it almost felt like the way that you do these chapters where, and people will realize this when they read it, like I said, you, you start and then you like, it's almost like you raise the tension throughout a chapter and then you change points of view and then it goes simple. It's almost like watching a horror movie where, you know, a lot of horror movies and I'll, I'll do this because I love watching horror, but I'm also like, depending on what type of horror it is, I'll do the like watching between my hands thing still. I'm 34 and I still mm -hmm. do that. But it's almost like as soon as the nighttime scene ends and like it becomes daylight, I can take a breath. I'm like, okay, I know I have like eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like you do that with the chapters where like something horrible will happen and then you'll change perspectives to like a police officer. And in my mind, at least mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, well, we're with a police officer. Now. I'm, I'm safe for 14 <laughs> pages or whatever it is. But you're not really safe because the police officer is Alex and he's like right in the middle of it. So Alex. yeah, yeah. He's yeah, I had a rough <laughs> go of it. I love Alex. Like, he was one of my favorite people to write. And obviously, um, one of the hardest people to write is uh, their bigoted neighbor. That was really... <sighs> yeah, uh, when you're writing a character like that, someone mm -hmm. who is just so... Hateful. Hateful. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. not even evil. Because I feel like there's a difference between writing an evil character yeah. and writing someone who's just a terrible person. Like, how do you approach that type of a situation? Um, I mean, it was like in some ways very difficult because you, you know, you're the writer and you're like, I don't want people to think that I think this way. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but then the other thing is like, this is stuff that you hear, yeah. especially right now. Mm -hmm. I feel <laughs> yeah. um, this, a lot of the things that she says are things that I heard sometimes I heard my own relatives say mm -hmm. um so it's really sort of channeling a little bit of that mentality you know mm -hmm. um again that sort of ignorance that kind of hatefulness and um I, I definitely feel that I'm subconsciously affected by things that happen mm -hmm. around me um when you know when I'm writing um the mermaid as an example is I was writing that during the 2016 election and that yeah. book is a super feminist book that's all about like women's agency and mm -hmm. like a wealthy man who tries to control her and like gee a lot of what's going on outside sort of seeped into this book when I was writing it. So when you're writing books because you've done several like we said re you know reimaginings and then also original stories does it feel different between the two and you said that you approach every book the same but like what about like a framework like like for you know the alice books like do you feel like you have to stay into a specific framework i don't only because i once i start writing the story it's mine 
So to me, um, I don't differentiate, I don't differentiate between stories that have sort of obvious influences and stories that have less obvious influences. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying it that way because every story written is influenced by stuff that's come before it, you know, and this is especially true in the horror genre where I feel like every horror author is sort of having conversation with all the authors that came before them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with something like Alice, um, the, the familiarity of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which has become, um, like really a cultural touch point, um, helps the reader find their way into the story, but I don't feel any need to like stay close to the original or refer back to the original, um, even in Lost Boy, where I felt Lost Boy was more of my idea of a prequel to Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. Um, Even then, I didn't stick necessarily with every single detail that J.M. Barry had created for the character of Captain Hook. Yeah. It's it's interesting because it's like, there are some thing, it's some people think that a, a specific story might be like holier than thou to kind of take and reimagine but then if you were to just retell a story in its same framework it's almost like what's the point of doing it and like you said you know with like with the ghost tree in addition to seeing like it and dairy now that you had mentioned like i also can see aspects of like scary stories to tell in the dark and like these books that i grew up with where it's like of course there are if there were if the only way that there couldn't possibly be influences for you to put into this is having never read read any of those things and then you wouldn't be an author at all right so like no art like ever happens in a vacuum and like Mm -hmm. um I think I sometimes get a little touchy on the subject of like is this original because Mm -hmm. I think that if I created it it's original it came from me you know um and I think that um especially as a woman who's written reimaginings, I feel like I get a lot more um, pushback on this idea that my work isn't original. Mm -hmm. Um, Because a lot of men also write reimaginings and when men write them, they're called reimaginings and reworkings and an original perspective on X. And when women write them, they're retellings. Mm-hmm. So, like, hear the language difference yeah. there. Like, one of them is very active. One of them is very passive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think, you know, once I start writing the story, that's mine. Mm-hmm. You know, because I'm bringing all of my influences, my perspective, um, everything that I've learned as a writer, everything that I am is going into that that story you know so like now it belongs to me mm-hmm. well and it's like uh, you were you did this really cool panel a couple days ago with um Stephen Graham Jones and Grady Hendrix and Paul Tremblay like that was you hit like this perfect like the four of you when I saw that that was happening I was like well this is almost too perfect it was like our office has like this probably because our office is basically all librarians and mm-hmm. it's like this group every we all we love all books but there's like this specific group in each genre that like everyone in our office just like love like if you walk around and say just say the name like ruth Ware, like 12 people will just stand up right i like the four of you are like our horror like it's almost <laughs> like mashing and i was like this is fantastic but th- there was a conversation that came up at a certain point talking about and i don't remember which one of you guys it was so i apologize mm-hmm. um but you're talking about how horror it almost starts with more kids and you're like especially like I think we're about the same age where like we would I would go ride a bike and it'd be with several of my friends and we'd be sitting in the woods and you'd tell like an urban fantasy or like an urban legend that was going on yeah and you try to convince everyone that's true and like it's like playing a game of telephone where you tell it to somebody and then they tell a completely different version to someone else I feel like that is exactly like that's the natural progression to becoming a horror writer is like really being able to exactly like you said about like these you know, like reimagining works and turning them dark it's just like a fun game of telephone where it's like you get to 
share your own dark version of it. Exactly. And that was, yes, I, I was the one who talked about telephone. That's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we all kind of contributed in that conversation. But yeah, you know, because we were talking about urban legends and how um, one of the reasons like why urban legends stick is because, um, first of all, everybody tells the story as if they know somebody who it happened to right mm -hmm. it's always like it's never somebody you know sort of five states away it's yeah. like my cousin's boyfriend like this really happened to yeah. them <laughs> um and so that like lends this era of verisimilitude to the story that mm -hmm. it wouldn't have otherwise um but everybody who tells the story puts their own little spin on it and then it's interesting to see how elements are retained mm -hmm. you know from version to version and then how things change so i grew up in upstate new york my husband grew up in chicago which is where i live now and um we heard some of the same stories when we were kids but we had slightly different mm -hmm. versions of those stories um so i think you know as storytellers we are always playing that game of tele telephone but with everyone who came before us, mm -hmm. you know, um, so all the stories that we've heard that we're now taking and taking that with our own experience and all these other things and mashing it all up and then yeah. something new comes out of it. So, okay, this is F from nothing, but I, as you were saying that I, re I like remember the main urban legend for me. So I grew up in it's this little town called Lorain, Ohio. It's in Northeast Ohio. It's actually where Tony Morrison is from, but that's like, the one thing that we can say. <laughs> and, like, and I think I've said that now, like, I don't know, 400 times on this podcast, because it, anytime like a hometown thing comes up, I'm like, Tony Morrison's always that. <laughs> um, but it's basically in the middle, much like the rest of Ohio, except for Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati, it's all cornfields. Um, and there was, out in the middle of nowhere, there was an orphanage that burned down. It was called Gore Orphanage. It was like, that's the name of it. So it was perfect for an urban legend. Mm -hmm. And the real story was that it had stopped being used like years and years and years before it burned down and there was no one in it. It was completely abandoned. Nothing horrible happened. It just was a fire. But us as kids were like Gore Orphanage with this creepy name burned down with all these children in it. And if you go and ride over the bridge on the way to Gore Orphanage Road, because they just kept the name, you'll see little handprints and stuff. And if you park your car on the bridge, you would put your keys on your windshield and your windshield wipers will turn on and throw your keys into the river. That was the, and like to think of it now, I'm like, if anyone had done that one time, there'd still be a car there. People would be like, well, we should never do this again. But everyone had their own version of like, oh, I saw baby handprints on the back of my car or like, oh, I heard children's voices. None of this was ever true, but it's so much more fun to just like make up your own version of that. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then it, it sticks, right? And it becomes kind of stickier gosh now I've forgotten the name of are you familiar with this book I forgot the name of the author's two brothers who wrote it it's about why ideas are sticky mm. um it's nonfiction. I can't remember off the top of my head but um I was listening to a podcast in which one of the authors was interviewed and he was talking about like why urban legends are sticky and one of the urban legends that I remember from my childhood was um, the story of the little girl who was running and she fell on the sidewalk and she hit her head and all these spiders came out of her head. Mm -hmm. You know this one? Yeah. Um, why is an idea like that sticky? Well, think about the visual that you're seeing, right? You're imagining like spiders pouring from this girl's head. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why urban legends endure because they um, touch this sort of... Uh, the sort of primal visual sense that we have of storytelling um, where we think of storytelling as something oral, but in the, the things, the stories I think that really stick with us are very visual. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, I like to compare it to like, um, I feel like I always say reading is an individual act that kind of then makes you part of a community. Like I won't lie. I read your book, like I said, over a course of several days. And then I have other friends who are also obsessed with horror. And like today I was just texting all of them. Like when this book comes out, you need to, talk, you need to read it. A, because it's amazing. But B, because it's killing me right now because it's not out yet. And I have no one to talk about it with. And I feel like that's such a major part of 
horror is the talking about it part, whether it's urban legends or horror books or horror movies. We're like, watching a horror movie by yourself just feels very like masochistic. Whereas like if you're with it together, you have the terror of the terrifying moment and then you can like laugh together and it's very cathartic. And I feel like that is such a, that's the connection between telling urban legends and then like reading and enjoying and loving horror as you grow up. It's like, it gives you a way to experience something together, if that makes sense. No, definitely. And I think that a lot of the stories like that kids tell each other when we're young, they're scary stories, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is that kind of sense of community that you get of all kind of being scared of the same thing. Or like you were talking about everyone, you know, how many teenagers in your town like went to that bridge and Mm -hmm. just to see what would happen, you know? Um, and then they have a story to tell and they have a story to share. So, yeah, I definitely think horror is communal. And I know that when I see a good horror movie or just something that makes me think, I always want to talk to somebody about it. When I saw Jordan Peele's Us, mm-hmm. um, for like three weeks afterwards, I kept going up to my husband like, and and this and this, you know, I was just so happy that he had gone to see it with me so that I could continually um, just sort of like, you know, spout out these things at random moments that mm-hmm. had just occurred to me about the movie. That's um, that was that was me with the movie The Witch. Mm-hmm. I feel like um, I actually recently talked to Alexis Henderson, who wrote The Year of the Witching. Yep. Yep. Oof, what a good book. But um, she and I talked about The Witch for like. I was so happy that because I felt like there were pieces in her book. I was like, does this kind of come from The Witch? And she's like, yeah, Black Phillip 100%. And I was like, yeah. I was so excited to have a person <laughs> that was like right on board with me. Um, are there tropes or things in horror that you dislike? Like, I hate found footage films. I just don't like them. They, they make me very uncomfortable. Like, are there things that you as a horror writer and enthusiast don't like? Um... There's certain things that I prefer. I would rather say that mm-hmm. um, because That's I'm fair. I'm always willing to be convinced. You mm-hmm. know, there are certain like film tropes in general that I dislike. Um, like I didn't watch the movie Split for a long time, even though I had liked some of M Night Shyamalan's previous work, and even mm-hmm. though everybody said it's a great movie, it's very suspenseful. Um, because I hate split personality movies. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go see that. It's a split personality movie. Um, but everyone kept telling me, no, no, it's really good. It's really good. And so I went and I saw it and I liked it more than I thought I would. So, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm always willing to be convinced. Mm. Um, I, I think more than anything, I dislike gatekeeping in horror mm. um, where people say like this is horror but not this or um if you don't like x then you're not a real horror fan or i think it's i think horror is a really big tent and i wish that um more of the fandom was welcoming to people who sort of have different ideas of what horror is and um because i I think there's room for a lot of people who don't necessarily think of themselves as horror fans mm-hmm. like if you don't like gore well, there's lots of scary stuff out there that's not gory. Yeah. You know, um, there's lots of stuff that's just suspenseful or atmospheric. Um, if you love gore, there's lots of stuff like that, too. And yeah. just stuff that goes to extremes and, like, really leans into it. Um, there's a lot of stuff in between. There's all different kinds of stories. There's stories that have supernatural elements. There's stories that don't. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that less than, you know, disliking certain tropes. I hate you know, that people say, this is horror, this, X. And, you know, nothing else is sort of in that box. Yeah, I that's I really love that because there is, I feel like people think horror is just like Stephen King full stop and it's just not. And like Stephen King is a great writer and he deserves all the praise that he's gotten, but he's not the end all be all where it's like you said, there's horror from you know there's juvenile horror all the way through adult horror and there's just like there's hard science fiction and like books that people will say like oh here's an introduction to science fiction for you it's the same thing for horror like I have read I read back-to-back books um one of them was called Wonderland by Mm -hmm. Zoya Stage and that is it's kind of like um 
almost like Shirley Jackson kind of where it's like in your mind and it's pretty, um, you know, it, it's sort of like, it, it makes you think a lot. But then like right after that, I read this book called um, The Whispers by Alex North. Oh yeah. The Whisper Man. The Whisper Man. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, that has so much like very graphic descriptions of what's going on and they're both horror, but they're miles apart from each other. And it's just, I, I think is whatever makes you excited while you're reading and you know I, I i completely agree with you it's there shouldn't be any hard and fast rules into what makes something horror versus like suspense or mystery i think they can all get very muddied together and also i mean i like to see i i really dislike when you see sort of um an idea catch hold that like a certain segment of the horror community will suddenly develop contempt for like oh. I did um, a panel in March actually it was just before COVID and everything kind of shut down but yeah. I did um, a panel at C2E2 with Joe Hill and Josh Mallerman and Daniel Kraus and one of the audience members uh asked us you know what do you think about jump scares Mm. and every you know everyone was kind of like well you know jump scares aren't that great and i was still thinking about this question six months later because that's (laughs) the kind of person that i am Uh and i started thinking you know sometimes in that moment you can't come up with the answer that you want Mm -hmm. we get very contemptuous of jump scares in film in horror because they're seen as sort of cheap or lazy. Yeah. But think about the most memorable scenes in so many films, they're jump scares. Mm -hmm. Think about the most memorable scene in Alien. It's a jump scare. Yeah. The most memorable scene in Jaws. It's a jump scare. (laughs) Anytime I think like that, the first jump scare I ever remember was from, it was from one of the Friday the 13th and it's not, it has nothing to do with, Jason worries it's a cat jumping out in the middle yeah. of like a basement yeah same thing it is it's like if you were to ask me that question three minutes ago I probably would have said I don't love jump scares because I think they're lazy but exactly what you said is is very is so true they are the most like memorable parts usually of a of a horror is like the thing that like an insidious when you see like the face and it's like right in the corner yeah those are the things that make it they make you memorable and they really stick with you. And I remember um, the first time, we have a 14-year-old son. So um, we've been watching more horror, obviously, as he gets older. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time we watched Alien with him. Now, obviously, my husband and I have seen it 1,000 times. Yeah. Um, so the great, the famous scenes coming up where the chestburster comes out of Kane. Mm-hmm. And we're, tr- we're watching his face, but trying not to... <laughs> show that we're watching him you know we're trying to like subtly out of the like give him some side eye like because we want to see like what his response is gonna be and it was honestly so rewarding (laughs) because he jumps about five feet out of his chair but that's what you want you Mm -hmm. know that's what obviously what Ridley Scott's going for in that scene is that absolute shock Mm -hmm. of this thing happening during this very mundane scene when they're all sitting there having breakfast do you remember the first could be movie or book that kind of gave you that feeling where it was like it creeped you out like to no end or something that maybe you still think about now that like kind of gives you like the creeps um yeah I actually talked a little bit about it during that panel you were talking about but um so I was 10 years old when Friday when uh, Nightmare on Elm Street came out right yeah yeah. Uh (laughs) and um I saw it very soon after it came out on video I went to a friend's house for a sleepover and Mm -hmm. um her she had a much older sister who went to the store and rented this movie and um I go by the name Tina my in the film there's a character named Tina who's Mm -hmm. the first person who's killed and Freddy Krueger lures her out of the house calling her name Tina Tina Mm -hmm. And I had nightmares about Freddy Krueger, I swear to God, until I was in college. Yeah. You know, I was really scared of Freddy Krueger. He's like, in like a lot of senses, when it comes to like the like perfect, like unstoppable villain, like he comes when you're sleeping. It's like what that you can't, you have to sleep eventually. And like, that's, I feel like they've gotten so much, so many legs out of that one simple thing where it's like every movie, it's like someone's taking pills to stay awake or whatever it is because it is it's like a perfect everyone sleeps eventually 
Right. And you're so vulnerable when you sleep. Mm. I mean, it's really, it's very similar, obviously, to the scene in Psycho when Janet Lee's character is killed because mm-hmm. you're vulnerable in the shower, right? You're yes. naked. You don't expect someone else to be there. Um, so like so much of the shock and scare of that scene comes not just from the appearance of the knife. Again, jump scare, right? Mm-hmm. One of the most memorable jump scares Very in film so. history. But she's so vulnerable. You're vulnerable when you have no clothes on. Mm-hmm. And when you sleep, you're vulnerable, you're relaxed. So the idea of a killer that stalks you in your sleep and you can't defend against that, that's mm-hmm. a very, very terrifying thing. Yeah. I'm laughing because you're talking about looking, watching your son have that reaction to Alien. Like I'm, I'm sure you've seen the stories too, like Alfred Hitchcock used to stay in the back of theaters for that exact moment and he would like peer in and watch the entire audience like lose their mind over that one scene. Like that would be so gratifying to see like 300 people just absolutely lose it. Yeah, and of course, you know, now it's not that big of a deal because it seems like it happens routinely in film Mm -hmm. where the star will get killed off in the first 15 minutes. But at that time, it was very shocking that an A-list movie star would get killed before the movie was over. Yeah, it's almost, yeah, I I do, I really do appreciate like modern day horror when, (laughs) when there is a famous person in it and like, you don't you maybe you didn't know that there's a famous person in it because they aren't top billing and you're like why aren't they top billing and then they get like murdered right away. like chris helmsworth in um cabin in the woods he lasts a little bit longer than that but like he gets wrecked and it's in a hilarious way and it's pretty early on and i remember being like i didn't know he was in this and it's like oh that's because he's gonna die like immediately it's fantastic or if you i don't know if you saw the hunt that came out recently well, i haven't yet no okay all right i won't say okay is, that, is, there, is there another version like that where somebody's killed pretty quickly yeah oh uh, i feel like if i was a famous actor that would be a thing i would do like once a year i would find like an up-and-coming horror director and i'd be like i don't need any money you can have me for three days murder me in like the most dramatic way early on please that would be fantastic well I mean, I feel like if I was in a horror movie, I would want the death that would have the least amount of corn syrup poured on me. That's like, fair. You know, yeah. I just don't want to spend three days, like, sticky. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Um, do you think we're about to get, like, a run of quarantine horror, like, novels? It's already starting with movies. Like, there's already been a few movies that have come on, like, Shutter and stuff that are Zoom-based and things of that nature. But do you think we're going to get some very um, almost, like, Shining-esque type stories that'll come out in the next couple of months or years yeah i mean i think probably people you know again you can't help sort of channeling your anxieties Mm -hmm. um and i've already gotten some feedback from people because the girl in red is a pandemic story and um people have been like so did you predict this or what (laughs) like no this is the something that like i think horror writers and science fiction writers have been like working through this anxiety about the end of the human race for the last 25 years. Um, So I I think that probably, yeah, it will start showing up. The question is, um, will mainstream publishers publish it or will they want to wait, you know, until some time's passed? So I think that's uh, certainly like independent publishing. You have the freedom to publish what you want, but like will mainstream publishers pick up, these things i i don't know i i think there's a sense too that you want to be respectful maybe to you know victims of the pandemic and Mm -hmm. um things like that so i'm curious to see what happens yeah i guess it could go two ways like my co-host jill when we were first first started the pandemic like she leans into things like she'll find books like um uh, like Chuck Wendig's like The Wanderers or even uh, Paul's book uh, you right. know, basically about the, like the same kind of a thing and like she was all about it early I'm like I've come around to it but at first I was like I need some escapism but there definitely are people who are like okay there's we've gotten so many emails people ask for requests like hey what's another pandemic book that I can read like, just turn the news on like it's happening <laughs> right now but yeah um, that is a good point where if mainstream pub- seeing what mainstream publishers kind of Wanted to, is there something you've done during quarantine that you're either like really proud of or like you wouldn't have expected that you would have done because of the circumstances that were kind of put in now? You mean writing-wise? Ah, uh, writing-wise or just like life-wise. Like I have uh, started cutting my own hair and I feel <laughs> like I'm never going to go to a, bar- a barber. I just, 
I got done watching Peaky Blinders when I like this all started. And I've just been like giving myself a more progressively extreme Peaky Blinders haircut. And I never would have known that I would have done that before. So it it works. Like, I mean, you look like you've been to the barber. <laughs> I seriously, somebody was like, I love your haircut. And I was like, I never got that compliment when I got a haircut. <laughs> Someone's going to do this myself now. But is there like something that you've done where it's like, oh, I wouldn't have expected that? Uh, I not so much because um, I was already um super introvert person <laughs> and um a lot of my life was based around our apartment to begin with <laughs> i um i actually have been homeschooling my son since he was in third grade so mm -hmm. like we were already at home uh, <laughs> i was already working from home uh so yeah really not a lot has changed and like all of my hobbies are like very individual I this run. Is, this is such an author yeah. answer, by the way. This is yeah. such an author answer. Um, yeah, so it's like, I, I feel like my life hasn't changed a lot. And I think mm -hmm. that as, an, as a writer, a lot of times you're, um, like, if you want to be able to write, you have to be able to, like, block stuff out and mm -hmm. compartmentalize, because it's very easy to do something like go on Twitter and start scrolling and then get caught up not not necessarily even in responding to things just sort of caught up in a cycle of emotion mm -hmm. because of what you're reading and then that can become very distracting I will tell you one thing that I have been doing is specifically limiting my screen time mm. um, just I started using that screen time app on my phone oh boy yeah it's rough <laughs> And then I, and I was a person who didn't think I was using my phone a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not one of those people who has my phone in my hand all day long. I actually leave it like six or seven feet away from me so that if I want it, I have to get up and go mm -hmm. to it. But even with that, I was appalled at how much of my day was yeah. spent on the phone. And I started to think, I just need to be more mindful about this. Like, I don't want to feel like if I'm away for 14 hours a day and four hours of my day is spent on the phone... Yeah. When you add up all those 10, 15 minute increments, it adds up, yeah. it's like, wouldn't I rather watch a movie or like play a board game with my family or, you know, isn't there something better I can do yeah. with that time? It's, you know, you mentioned that you're a runner. I'm also a, a distance runner. And that's one of the things where it's like when I'm out running, like trail running or something, I obviously am not looking at my phone and I feel so much better when I'm done. I'm like, yeah, it's the endorphins and everything. But it's also the fact that like, I was aware of my surroundings for two hours and like yeah I have to like actively remind, remind myself when I'm not running like that's one of the reasons you felt good so maybe put your freaking phone down and do something else I'm right there with you yeah I mean it's really I think especially now because there's this constant flood of information and we're all anxious and there's so many things happening and there's so mm. many things to be anxious about yeah but like is it productive to just scroll twitter and be anxious yeah. you know <laughs> no, is it not. you could use your time if, like especially if you're worried about certain things like you could volunteer or like you could donate or you yeah. know like there's a bunch of other things that you could be doing like to channel that anxiety yeah. um but it's so easy to pick up your phone yeah it really and, is um okay so at the end of our episodes we like to ask nine lighthearted questions that we call the nerd nine not that anything else that i asked you was like super heavy hitting um, but the first one is, what is the last book you finished reading? Um, I just finished, what did I just, finish? I read so many books. I'm like, I'm actually looking over, look at, I just <laughs> finished, I'm now reading Freakonomics. So like, I finally got on board with that for, after 15 years. Um, <laughs> I just finished The Girl from Widow Hills by Megan Miranda. Nice. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? No, I mean, I will read anywhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually consider my day wasted if I don't have a book with me. So I hate being caught somewhere without a book. Like, oh, I have 10 minutes to stand here. I'll just read. Mm -hmm. um, do you remember the book that maybe kind of made you fall in love with reading when you were a kid? I don't remember. It's interesting. I don't really remember not reading mm -hmm. I don't remember like the time before I could read I was a very early reader um I mean some of the first books I remember reading were little golden books yeah um I remember I loved the monster at the end of this book yeah starring Grover uh-huh <laughs> um I mean I have a lot of books that have 
sort of been touch points for me throughout my life. But um, yeah, I don't really remember not reading. I was always a big reader. And by the time I was in second or third grade, I was reading, you know, like 80, 100 books a year. Just mm -hmm. one of those kids that yeah. was a big reader. Yeah. Um, when we're allowed to travel again, if the where's one place you'd like to go that you have not yet been to? Um, so we were actually had been planning a big trip to Japan this year, which has gone into the toilet. Um, so uh, as soon as we're allowed to travel again, that's where we're going. Do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? I love Halloween. I feel like that's unsurprising answer. <laughs> I don't think I've had a horror novelist not say Halloween yet. Well, uh, it's not like we're gonna say Easter. Like incredible. If you're like, I don't know, Fourth of July is great. Um, do you? Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Tea. Cats or dogs? Um, I like them both. Do you have a favorite food? Uh, that's a hard one. Yeah. <laughs> um. So I'm Italian, so I like I do a lot of cooking in general, but um, I also love pretty much every Asian food. I like all foods. I should really just say I like all the food. <laughs> that works. Um, okay, last one of these. If you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Mm. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, did, I always have trouble with these. Um, Barack Obama. Oh. Oh, that's a good one. Mm -hmm. Actually, we've had more Michelles than Barack's actually over the years, which doesn't super surprise me. But yeah, I mean, I think they're both winners. Um, okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading The Ghost Tree? Um, I mean, I hope that people are engaged. I hope that they're entertained. Um, I hope that um, they take away a, a little bit of thoughtfulness maybe about the way um, we treat each other in our communities. Um, yeah, but it mostly I hope that people enjoy it. Well, it's so, so good. I know we didn't talk a ton about plot today, but that was up by design because you just, you have to read this book and you will understand why we were avoiding it so much when you do read it. Christina, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.